Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Amy Irvine McHarg, author of Trespass, Living at the Edge of the Promised Land, and Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America, and other books, are joining me today for a special Earth Day 2013 Access Utah. We'll be reflecting on environmental issues. They'll be reading from their works, and you're invited to join in on the discussion. We're going to be asking you several questions regarding the environment on this Earth Day. What's your biggest worry? What's your biggest hope? Where have we made progress? What is the area of greatest need for progress? What is your favorite place and why? Our discussion will likely range from the poetic to the political. You're invited to join in. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com. Amy Irvine McHarg, author of Trespass and Other Works, uh, joins us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here, Tom. It's great to have you on the program. I understand, uh, reading uh, from your website, that you're... uh, you are uh, doing a uh, residency? I am. Uh, in New Hampshire? In New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a different landscape, different environment. It is, although I have a number of colleagues there, traveling companions from the West, such as Craig Childs and Mark Sundin, both great Western writers. So in a way, I feel like home. All right. I feel like home there. <laughs> you have some company there. Uh, and uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, through Bargaining for Eden and uh, many other books, uh, joins us as well. Thank you so much. Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. Hi, Amy. Hi, Tom. Stephen. Uh, let, me, uh, let me start with Stephen Trimble. Uh, as we reflect on, I believe this is Earth Day number uh, 44, started in 1970. Um, it, and as you, you, know, you look back through, um, th- through that time and, uh, and as we look forward, this is an opportunity for us to, to get a bit reflective. What, what is uppermost on your mind as you, as you contemplate Earth Day 2013? Oh my! What is well? There's so many things that I could say to that, Tom. I think um, I look back and think this is the history of Earth Day. Is sort of my own personal history. I was in college for the first Earth Day. I'm I'm a generation older than Amy. I was there at the beginning, and I feel as invested in it as you know all of us do. As all of us feel invested in those things that come from the time we were 20. So it's it's very tender and personal for me to think about Earth Day each year and to take note of our relationship with the Earth. So in some ways, it's really personal. The other thing I think about is how we keep fighting the same battles over and over again, you know, in slightly different ways. And many of the same things that were on the tips of our tongues in 1970 are still here with us. You know, the same battles, the same anger, the same desperation to do something before it's too late. And uh, we're always kind of perched on the brink, and here we are perched on the brink of massive climate change and overdevelopment and too many people. So those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. Uh, Amy, you're Ron McHarg. Uh, same question to you. Uh, you you a uh, generation younger than Stephen, but uh, I'm sure Earth Day rolls around each year, causes some reflection. It certainly does, Tom. Um, you know, that I think the, the most impressionable Earth Day for me, starting out as a young activist, was working at the Patagonia Outlet in Salt Lake City on Highland Drive. And we launched a sort of Recycle Utah kind of campaign. It was very grassroots. But the night that we, we invited the public in to learn about recycling, it was standing room only. And I just remember feeling so hopeful and like this is where it begins, is with this kind of grassroots consciousness. But today it doesn't feel like 
we can accomplish a lot just by recycling our household goods. It feels like we are faced with much bigger change, as Stephen is pointing to. The problem is we've had, as he said, these conversations over and over, the same anger is there, the same pointing of fingers, and the problems become more monumental as we speak. And so today I'm thinking more about the inner landscape and what is sustainable internally, because I, I think it's the one place that each of us can cultivate radical change. Um, I'm thinking specifically today of a quote from Carl Gustav Jung, the psychoanalyst from Switzerland that has shaped um, Western civilization greatly in terms of art and how we think about the self and the other that we point the finger at. And the quote that I'm thinking of today for Earth Day is, the world hangs on a thin thread, and that is the psyche of man. Hmm. And just what did he mean by this? Um, sort of the idea that whatever we don't, whatever dark shadow, as he called it, that we have in ourselves that we don't want to look at, that we repress in some way, is precisely the thing that we find in the world to complain about. And so just what can we shed light on in ourselves? Because there's sort of a, a, you know, we're all complicit. And the day I really came to understand this was actually being the guest of a book club in the foothills of Salt Lake City. And I, I pulled up, it was a gated community, um, a hilltop that I used to hike on years ago that had been raised and very large homes put on. I pulled up, there were very large SUVs, um, Lincoln Navigator types. And I walked in, and there was an array of gorgeous food and wine that had been brought in from all over the world, very high-carbon footprint, but there were recycling bins. And, and the people there had been very moved by trespass, and we had some lively discussion about it. But at one point, the one woman said, I'm just disgusted by your redneck neighbors and how unsustainable their lifestyle is. And I had that moment where the, the floor fell out, and I thought, you can't see your own part in this. And if I get angry here and I point the finger at you, then once again we've just created the same old tired debate about who's wrong again and again. Hmm. We're talking, reflecting on Earth Day, on Earth Day with uh, Amy Irvine McCarg, author of Trespass, and uh, Stephen Trimble, author of uh, several books about the environment. He's also a photographer. You're welcome to join this discussion. We're throwing out several questions to you as well as my guests, including what are your reflections on Earth Day? What is your biggest worry, your biggest hope? Where have we made progress? What is the area of greatest need for progress? What is your favorite place and why? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Stephen Trimble, I notice you're uh, you're you're quoted uh, along with several people in a uh, a lengthy uh, uh, article on climate change. Salt Lake Tribune yesterday is the Sunday edition, and this I'm sure is is on your mind on on Earth Day. You're talking uh, along somewhat similar lines that Amir von McHarg was talking about. You're you're saying that at least in Utah's political climate. You don't have a lot of hope of uh, changing immediately political leaders' minds, but maybe you can change your neighbors' minds. That's right. And the art, the article in the Tribune over the weekend was an article that grew out of the Stegner Center Symposium up at the University of Utah Law School a week or so ago. And this year, the, the symposium focused on faith, religion, and the environment. And this is very much resonant with what Amy was saying about kind of shifting the argument or the discussion into more personal terms. 
Uh, you know, I'm reading a fascinating book right now called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, who's a uh, social psychologist, and he's trying to figure out how we make our moral decision. And he makes the point that our emotions rule, that when we hear a rational or reasonable argument, we only believe it if it matches our intuition, if it matches what we've already decided, what we already see in the world. And that's why I think it's so powerful to move the discussion about the earth and conservation and wildness out of the realm of politics and into that realm that Amy was talking about, the more personal space. Uh, There's been a, a brilliant campaign to take that conservation and conversation about uh, climate change into the realm of religion. The Interfaith Power and Light Movement started by Sally Bingham, an Episcopal priest in San Francisco. And there was a lot of discussion at the Stegner Symposium on this. And we've done similar campaigns in Utah where we've uh, created an interfaith conversation about wildness, the faith and the land conversation that led to an interfaith statement about the meaning and value of wildlands to the people of Utah. It's a, it's a very different way of looking at land than, say, the legislature is looking at right now in terms of trying to take over the management of all those glorious public lands, really for the sake of development and seeing the land as a commodity. I, I just wanted to read back to you a wonderful summary of all of the values common to the world's religions. This comes out of a uh, talk that Mary Evelyn Tucker gave at the symposium. Uh, she's a scholar at Yale who's worked with a lot of world religions in making connections between religion and environment. And think as you hear this, this short list, think about how the, the members of the Utah State Legislature would, would hear this list. So these, these are the values that she identified as common to all world religions. Reverence for the Earth community, respect for myriad species, restraint in use of natural resources, redistribution of technology and aid, reciprocity with all life, responsibility for the future of life, restoration of ecosystems and the human spirit. It's a great credo for Earth Day. Hmm. Uh, Amy um, Urban McHarg, I wonder if you could respond to, to some of those points. Um, you're talking about the the internal change, and right, and uh, Stephen Trimble is talking about getting away from the political debate, which you know seems to have been the same <laughs> essentially since 1970. Uh, but isn't there a danger there that uh, you know the political is is where you actually get significant change to happen? Isn't it? Well, I think it, we think of it as dangerous because the the political becomes personal when we internalize it as gnosis. And I'm thinking about the Gnostic traditions in Eastern and Western worlds that have been where people have been persecuted brutally for having that kind of internal depth and consciousness. Um, I'm thinking of the Tibetans, but I'm thinking of the Cathars of southwestern France. Um, who were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church for a more Gnostic type type of Christian experience. And I'm also thinking of the Mormons and their tradition of personal revelation um, and how sort of frightening that is for the world. And again, I think it comes back to what's in your own depths and what is it that you're not um, afraid to express and live in the world. And I would say that along with reverence and compassion, that, that the very sense of wildness is a kind of gnosis. And 
whatever sort of traumatic experiences we have that we don't really keep in our consciousness as, as part of what fuels our politics and our religion, our marriage, our sexuality, our relationship with animals, um, those things become sort of uh, grist for the, the unconscious mill. They get projected out into the world, and those imbalances in ourselves, those unresolved things become imbalances in the world. And I just want to, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples that we could psychoanalyze here, say the behavior of Hitler or Earl Holding Jr. or the gunmen, the, the bombers from Boston. But what I'd like to do is bring it a little closer to home and a little bit more simple kind of internalization of trauma that is the kind I think everyday people can relate to. And this is, this is from a scene in the book I'm working on right now called Terra Firma, which is very much about our internal ecosystem and dwelling in that landscape fully and how that helps us live in the world differently. And in this particular little scene, my daughter, who was four years old at the time, her, her pet goat, Dora the Explorer, was killed by a bear. And Ruby reacted you know, with great upset, as a child would, um, and said, I hate that bear, Mommy. Bears are bad, bad, bad. And, of course, the neighbor, our neighbors, everybody was out with guns looking for this bear, wanting to track it down before it did any more damage. And there was a lot of fear and anger and upset. So here's, the, the, here's what happened with that and how a small child resolves this dilemma that otherwise I think if we had fueled it would have become internalized and later become some sort of mistrust in the animals that live in her neighborhood. Um, or people, for that matter. I think the same thing happens with people. Anyway, she's, she, this is what happened. For several days afterwards, Ruby dramatized the scene between goat and bear with her toys, and each evening at bedtime asked me to tell once more the story of what happened. One night she awoke in terror. Shaking, howling, she scrambled onto my lap and told me she had dreamt that a bear was trying to kill her. I almost said those words I have heard perhaps a thousand times. It's just a dream, honey. It's not real. But that would have been out of habit. With the way things I had never felt or known about myself were surfacing, I could no longer say it's just a dream. To run from a bear in your dreams is to flee from your own potential. In other words, if one fails to face into the fear of an approaching archetypal ursine, that fear manifests in the physical realm as a projection, that which we heave out into the world because we were unable to claim it within ourselves. The projection is then managed at a cool distance as the other, that which the self is not, that which is ravenous, uncontrollable, and terrifyingly so. And so I told Ruby that if the bear came again, she must stand her ground, ask it what it wants. I stroked her arms as she found her way back to sleep. A few hours later, she woke again whimpering. Mommy, the bear came back, and when I asked him what he wanted, he said he was hungry, so I gave him a carrot. Ruby was no longer terrified, but tentative. It didn't take long for her to go out again, and I was still sitting next to her when she started to giggle. Then she sat straight up, and her eyes shone in the pewter moon shower falling through the window. Mommy, the bear came back, and this time he looked just like Winnie the Pooh. Mm. That's from uh, Terra Firma, which is a... Uh, you're still working on that, or is that be out soon? It, well, it, it's a little overdue. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter has had had a severe illness that put the book on the back burner, but um, it will be out as soon as I can get the manuscript done. It's to be published by Counterpoint Press. 
All right. That'll, that'll be the new book from Amy Irvine McHarg. One of my guests today, the other guest is Stephen Trimble, author of uh, many books, and he's a photographer as well on the environment. We're talking about Earth Day, reflecting on Earth Day 2013, and you're welcome to join our reflections uh, at 1 800 826 1495. Or you could email us at upraxis at gmail.com. What's on your mind on this Earth Day? Is it climate change? Is it wilderness, open space? Uh, maybe you'd like to tell us your favorite place and why. I'll ask that question of my guests a little later in the program as well. We'll take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll have uh, Stephen Tribble read a passage from one of his works. Earth Day Reflections on Access Utah today. Waste not. Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Did you know that preschool children already have an intuitive number sense that relates to their later performance in school math? Research suggests that ways to improve this early number sense may include having children play multi-sensory computer games. This type of play may eventually help boost early math education in the U.S. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are reflecting on Earth Day. Earth Day 2013 is Earth Day number 44, started in 1970. We're reflecting on environmental issues, and we're having Amy Irvine McCarg, author of Trespass, and Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden and other books, uh, read from some of their works. They're reflecting on uh, the meaning of Earth Day and uh, where we've made progress, where we still need to make progress, Favorite places and what uh, what is our need for wild places? Some of those questions we're throwing uh, out to you as well. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Stephen Trimble, I wonder if, if we could have you read uh, something for us. Uh, I'd be delighted to, Tom, but I want to make one point before I read a little a chunk of writing. As I was listening to what we've said so far, I, wa- I wanted to emphasize that the, uh, the personal that we are talking about, that Amy and I have emphasized, grows right back into the greater culture, that it leads to political action. You know, that's, that uh, lovely passage, that provocative passage that Amy read about Ruby, Ruby's encounter with a bear. You know, I, I predict that Ruby will always have a special feeling for bears after that experience. And it's those kinds of personal connections to animals and place that we have in childhood, uh, the kinds of things that Gary Nabhan and I wrote about in our book, The Geography of Childhood, that give us our grounding in life, that, that our relationship with the natural world begins in childhood, and we build on that. And I've seen that play out in politics, you know, that love for particular places. Uh, there have been these little flurries of activity in, in conservation action in Utah and on the Colorado Plateau. One of those came in the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior, and Canyonlands National Park was created, arches and Capitol Reef and Grand Canyon were all expanded, we blocked the dams on the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. That all happened when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior, and and Stuart Udall grew up on the Colorado Plateau. He grew up in St. John's, Arizona. These were places he knew. These were places he loved. 
And it takes a lot of energy and persistence to push any of that stuff through Congress or to persuade a president who is really an urban person to take action. And it happens when there is someone who really loves these places and wants to see something happen. And the next time it happened was when Bruce Babbitt was Secretary of the Interior, who grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona, and convinced Bill Clinton to proclaim Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in 1986. And so we don't see action in, in the real world, except for those times when there's someone in a position of power who is in love with those places. And, uh, you know, one of the last acts in the tenure of Ken Salazar, Secretary of the Interior, was for President Obama to proclaim the Rio Grande del Norte National Monument, the biggest national monument he's proclaimed so far in the southern reaches of the San Luis Valley where Ken Salazar grew up. So they're, they're really powerful personal connections here that I think uh, we need to recognize when we have these conversations that sound sort of philosophical and highfalutin and very far from real-world experience, but take us right back into that world later in people's lives. So let me, let me read you a little piece here. This is a piece that I keep coming back to. It's, it's really my tribute to the Colorado Plateau, and I published it in many different versions and used it in many different talks, and uh, I'd like to share it with you today. It's, it's had many different titles, but we'll call it Erosion Today. The Colorado Plateau is a prayer turned to stone. The land turns us inward. We walk down secret slots into the earth as we walk down the aisles of houses of worship, as we pass into sacred space in any tradition. We reach out to touch cross-bedded and sculpted walls created by water as we are created by water. Music comes to us, the chords of rapids down canyon, the singing of canyon wrens, the lilting paired notes of a musical waterfall. Light comes in rich and intense colors, the hues of royalty and holiness and fundamental emotion, monkish saffron and stately gold and the reds of damask and blood. We wait on a ledge, balanced on the brink of an old canyon, seeing before us the first instant in the life of a new canyon. In this invisible moment between the long past and the unknown future, we stand on the edge, living on the rim of time. Each canyon shelters secrets, but to share them, you often start in desert flats. An arroyo leads on, the dry stream bed winding through clay hills, baked to crumbles by sunlight. Aridity rules. Suddenly, you leave the flats behind and enter the water pocket fold, the San Rafael swell, the fiery furnace, the Perea narrows, comb ridge, Sandstone walls rise on either side to funnel you into a canyon. Amble on and you may find water, a trickle, a pool, a spring. Sheltered in an alcove, nourished by a seep, a hanging garden shimmers with blossoming monkey flower and columbine. Green bounces off canyon walls, the transcendent emerald of a maidenhair fern. This algae scum pool has the mystery of the sea. On all sides stand the canyon walls of old overwhelming rock that provide both frame and picture, tapestry by dark mineral stains of desert varnish, accented at their bases by dancing juniper gnarls and murky plunge pools. Claret cup cactus blooms against all odds from a crack in a 20-ton boulder. Past the narrows, a trickle of water leads on. 
Here and there a single cottonwood leaf gleams through golden riffles. Another small narrows opens up into an amphitheater, a cool grotto of stone in the center of the earth. Soothed by slick rock, cradled by stone in the close embrace of the Colorado Plateau Canyon, stand here in the still water of a plunge pool, whirligig beetles brushing your ankles. The canyon continues above the amphitheater, but a 30-foot dry fall blocks the way. The essence of the Colorado Plateau waits above that amphitheater where perhaps no person has walked. Plunge into time, into the earth. Walk any canyon, but leave one rimfall unclimbed, one bend unexplored. Just once, stand in glory and the magic, luring you around a corner, and then turn back the way you came. Leave one canyon to wind its way around a cliff and disappear unseen into the unknown wild heart of the plateau. And again, what book is that from? Uh, it's that from a book. It's from oh, a piece okay. of writing that I keep coming back to and using okay. in different ways when I, when I want to pay tribute to the place I love. All right. That's Stephen Trimble. We're talking with Stephen Trimble and Amy Irvine McCarg. We're reflecting on Earth Day and uh, asking you what, uh, where we've made progress, where we need to make progress, uh, what's your favorite place and why. Your reflections on Earth Day at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. I wonder, uh, listening to that passage, Amy O'Brien McCarg, and, and thinking about what wild places do for you, I'm wondering, first of all, how do you, how do you explain that experience out that I'm sure you've had out in, uh, in some of those canyons, wild places in Utah? What, what's your explanation? What's the discussion with the people in New Hampshire there? Hmm. Well, the words that come up for me when I'm listening to that just exquisite passage that Stephen just read is... Um, you know, the experience of sensuality and intimacy with a place. And certainly that is the core of what I teach my students in the, the MFA program in New Hampshire. And it's what I bring back to my writing again and again. Um, I think the trick for environmentalists right now, the environmental community as a whole, um, and maybe just for the world with any community problems with the the violence we're seeing now, the the disparity, which it's not going away, is that we bring the sensuality and intimacy that we can feel with the land or we can feel about an animal. We feel with our children, our, our spouses, but to bring it out to the human community as a whole. I think we, I, I know a lot of environmentalists that it's easier for them to project that that feeling onto a landscape or another species, but it's much more difficult for them to do it with, with other humans. And it's terrifying. Um, so I, it's almost easier. So I think what, what needs to happen is to find what scares you in yourself so that when you look at the other, you're not, you're not projecting whatever unknown thing in yourself, whatever, you know, the fear of the bear onto the other, because we, we all have a position where, of rightness and values. Um, I'm thinking to what just happened in Boston, and the, the thing that I cannot shake is not only the horrific images of the maimed, but afterwards when they carted away, the ambulance carted away the, the bloody, wounded, uh, surviving bombing suspect and how the crowd cheered and jeered were the words used. And 
that brings me back to something I've heard, I've read Nietzsche um, say, as well as Bono on a, on a tour with you two, which is we have to be careful in fighting the monster that we don't become the monster ourselves. And I think that's why people like Tim to Christopher scare us, because he he sort of dared to stand up there and be in relationship with all of it and put his neck on the line. And whether you agree with the politics of it or not, what sticks with me is that his last line was, this is what love looks like, and it will only grow. And he's not going out to become um, the rabid environmentalist shaking his fist in the air. He's actually leaving prison or halfway house now to go to Harvard Divinity School. I think he's run the gamut of these experiences with um, the battles between the Republicans and the Democrats, the wise youth group versus the wilderness advocates, you know, every, every self and other this and that group that you can see the two sides of. I think he's had to come up against that and, and sort of weather the storm of the disparity between the groups. And, and what he's choosing is to go deeper into the intimacy and the sensuality of being in community with humans. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Amy Irvine McCard brought uh, Tim Christopher up. I was going to bring him up. Stephen Trimble, what do you think of uh, the case of Tim Christopher? What, what does it mean? What does what his actions uh, mean? Well, I'd agree with everything Amy said. I, we, we so much need to find and celebrate our common ground rather than our differences. And Tim is absolutely on that track to be a Unitarian minister and celebrate our connections to each other. You know, the, the second chapter in the horrific events in Boston was the way that people in the city pulled together after the attack. And there have been, been, many, there've been many lovely commentaries written by the people of Boston about the love that they shared and the support that they felt for each other. Uh, in Utah, there is common ground amongst these groups that spend so much time in the courts hollering at each other and in legislative hearings speechifying. And if we could only get back out on the land and walk together, I think that many of the most rabid states' rights, um, you know, development, commodity, land as commodity folks also love taking walks in the backcountry. And if you could walk along the riverbank together, environmentalists, and legislators and agency scientists and families, I think we'd find an awful lot of common ground and discover that we, we all love this place and we, we probably can work together if we can just get ourselves out of those, those tracks where we just keep running in the same circles. Um, I, I mentioned the Faith and Land initiative that came along a couple of years ago. There's a similar initiative right now called For Kids and Lands, that has sort of grown out of the education community to to try to counter the the land grab, the the bills that are coming out of the legislature that are insisting that all those glorious public lands be managed by the state of Utah rather than by the United States government for the people of the United States. And the point of For Kids and Lands is that if we want to generate money for our children, then we can do that in ways without destroying the land that they are going to love and depend on just, just as much as we do. And, uh, you know, I think Tim DeChristopher's action when he was bitter 70 at that, at that oil and gas auction simply grew spontaneously out of his love for the land and his love for 
people and his concern for the future. And those are universal emotions and values that he's going to become more and more articulate about and more and more powerful in his articulation of our our need to attend to those in a position, in a, in a bully pulpit. And I think I, I love what he's chosen to do, to to come back at this through the position of ministering to mm-hmm. our, our anguish and our needs in the future. Do you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, people on either side of the conflict getting out on the land together. Do you... Do you... Do you see more of that? If you, you took a snapshot in you know, 1970s to today, do you do you see progress in in that area of trying to reach consensus? Well, one of the big one of the biggest changes is that even the most conservative and intransigent of our elected officials now acknowledge that there is wilderness out there, that there are millions of acres out there. You know, they certainly will quibble about the numbers, but you know, 20 years ago. There was a position, you know, a rigid position in, in the political establishment that there really wasn't any wilderness at all. And they've come around, as the people have come around, in, in moving them along with them. And, um, you know, I, I think that it, whenever anyone gets out on the land, those values shift, those attitudes shift, those positions shift. And uh, we have a lot more work to do to get people out on the land together. We keep getting stuck in uh, in hearing rooms and courtrooms, but we we are making some progress. We're going to take another break. We're uh, speaking with Stephen Trimble and Amy Irvine McHarg. We're reflecting on Earth Day 2013 here on Access Utah. You're welcome to join this discussion at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail dot com. Back after a break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Child and Family Support Center of Cache County, strengthening families and protecting children throughout National Child Abuse Prevention Month each April. Programming and event information is at childandfamilysupportcenter.org. Waste not. Leaking toilets are the number one cause for high water bills. You can place a few drops of food coloring into your tank to check for leaks. If the food coloring appears in the bowl without flushing, you have a small leak. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Support for Utah Public Radio is also provided by the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. You're listening to Access Utah. We are reflecting on Earth Day 2013 about the environment. Uh, environmental issues, and we're having Amy Irvine McHarg and Stephen Tribble talk about this and read uh, some passages from their works. We're throwing some questions out to you as well. Where have we made progress? What is the area of greatest need for progress? What is your favorite place and why? 1-800-826-1495, the number, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com. Let me turn back to uh, Amy Irvine McHarg. Um, uh, in today's or yesterday's Tribune, there's uh, we talked about or the uh, the writers, and uh, Stephen Trimble was uh, quoted here talking about the moral dimension of uh, climate change debate. And uh, you've touched on uh, intersections in in your works of of religion and and uh, environmental debate. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could reflect a bit on on that. This is I, I assume that this will be a very important to part of any any solution in the debate going forward, and especially in Utah with the 
you know, the, the, the Mormon uh, church. And there's a debate among uh, Mormons about uh, the stewardship over the environment. Right. I think it will play a, an enormous part in the debate, ultimately, in, in how we save the world, really. And um, I think it comes, I, I guess I'm a little less optimistic than Stephen about getting everybody out on the land and having, finding the common ground. I've, I've been, as a former wilderness advocate working for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, I've seen too many really intense exchanges um, out on the land. You know, we, we go out with a group and one, one person sees an oil and gas well, somebody else sees a really good dirt bike track, somebody else sees untrammeled quiet. And I, I, to me, it comes back to a, an even, and this is a fairly radical suggestion, but it comes back to an even deeper notion than religion, and that is this sense of gnosis, this very personal spiritual capacity that religion doesn't necessarily always fill because people have some way that the psyche can't absorb. Um, for some people, you call it divine love, what, whatever it is that, that sustains us internally. And if that inner realm is not sustainable, if it's not, if the cup does not run us over, so to speak, then all those deficiencies and needs get projected onto our physical environment. We can never have enough money, enough time, enough good food, enough wealth, enough nice clothes, a nice enough car. Um, and, we're, and we're seeing this happen in other countries. I mean, China, I have a very dear friend from Utah who's now a, an attorney that works with the um, securities exchange in China, he said, you know, the, the country is just following our footsteps in terms of the goal of most young people is to own an iPhone. And that is really like their ultimate achievement, how they feel full. And so if we're out on the land and we have this inner deficit, we can, we can try and ride our dirt bike a lot. We can get rich on an oil and gas well. We can even go hike through the wilderness and have a spiritual experience. But if there's, if there's some repressed trauma or some way that we can't allow that in, which most people have in some way, even if it's just leaving the Garden of Eden as a child, then it becomes very hard and it, may, and it thwarts our conversation about what common ground really is. And the way trauma works, and there's more and more discussion of trauma because of the expressions of horrific violence that we're seeing um, people are realizing, look, we really need to understand what is making people blow, what is make, making people take or hate, point the finger in ex such, such extreme ways. And the way repressed trauma works or unresolved trauma is it makes us myopic, it makes us narcissistic, it makes us frozen and dissociated. And ultimately it takes us out of relationship. So we have no capacity to feel the sensuality of the landscape that Stephen wrote so beautifully about and just read to us. We have no capacity for the kind of intimacy that, that Tim DeChristopher dared to have by standing up and saying, this is what love looks like to people that were pointing the finger at him and, and vilifying him to a, an incredible extreme. And really, he was just being a citizen um, and exercising those democratic rights. So there's something that there's even, I think, a deeper calling at this point, some way that, that we need to be able to look at this inner shadow that Carl Jung speaks about. Um, he says that the less, the less um, 
embodied it is in an individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is, meaning that's a thing we can't see in ourselves, and it's the way that thwarts us in relationship. We have a uh, caller on the line. Uh, We'll go to him next. Denny in Cedar City, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning, and happy Earth Day, everybody. Good morning. I'd like to uh, comment about a favorite, maybe most favorite spot, and then also make a comment about the Utah land grab for the federal lands. My favorite place in southern Utah right now is the Double Arch Alcove in the Kolob section of Zion National Park. It's absolutely spectacular. Uh, Five-mile round-trip hike. We uh, made that hike about a month ago and started out in 50-degree weather and ended up in 10 inches of snow (laughs) (laughs) as you get to the to the top of the canyon so if anybody uh, is looking for a grand hike five miles in southern utah i really endorse double arch alcove section and why is that your favorite place oh i guess it's it's a spectacular box canyon it's very narrow the um the way the sun hits the south facing cliffs and radiates that that light back onto the north facing where the double arches are located um, is, 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 um, makes me wordless <laughs> it's mm. really wonderful yeah that's uh, that's a, a reaction I think a, a lot of us have to some of these places uh, and and you were going to make a comment on on uh, the as you characterize it uh, the land grab federal lands from Utah's point of perspective well I think that First of all, the attempt may be unconstitutional, and I'm hoping that the powers that be will have the foresight to look at the legal issues before they jump in and start spending a lot of money to sue the federal government. But I'm aware of the cutback in the budgets of the Utah state parks. And if that's happening at the state level with resources they already have, how in the world will they be able to manage the millions of acres of of federal land? And I think that if we, as citizens, um, don't rise up and make our wishes known, then we'll probably deserve what we get, because I think there's no doubt in my mind it'll be a diminished experience. And I think we can see and look forward to a lot of uh, development on otherwise pristine lands. Well, thank you, Denny. Appreciate your call. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, that was Denny from Cedar City. Denny called 1-800-826-1495. we got about uh, six or seven minutes left in the program, and uh, you're welcome to call if you'd like to. Your reflections on Earth Day, we'd love love to have that. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is the uh, email. Uh, Stephen Trimble, your, your reaction to Denny or, or to what uh, Amy Irvin McCark was saying? Well, I love, I love what Denny said about citizens taking action. You know, George Handley, who was a a wonderfully powerful voice in Utah, uh, devout Mormon, ardent environmentalist, who teaches in the humanities department at at BYU, gave uh, an important talk at that that, uh, Stegner Center Symposium a week or two ago about being a Mormon environmentalist in Utah. 
And one of the points that George made was that more change will happen if it's driven by citizens, that change is going to happen from the ground up, that it's easier to change the mind of your neighbor by taking a walk in the woods than it is to try to change the mind of Mike Noel or Rob Bishop or, or Gary Herbert or the, the apostles of the Mormon Church. And Jenny uh, was making the same point. You know, citizens have to rise up. Barack Obama uses that word a lot, too. And I, I think it's crucial, just absolutely crucial. Um, I, I admit to still taking some care to preserve my idealism and to preserve my hope. You know, many years ago, I did a lot of interviewing in Indian country in the Southwest for my book on Southwest Indian tribes, the people. And I remember asking social workers and tribal officials in desperately poor Native communities how they managed to maintain hope in the face of just enormous challenges. And over and over, they would give me a very simple and straightforward answer that basically they had no choice. They couldn't get up in the morning and do their work without hope. They had to simply make that decision, absolute. We can make a change. No matter how desperate the situation looks, we have to keep moving forward and making those small incremental changes. And that's the job of citizens, to talk to their neighbors, to talk to their family, to, to move the conversation forward you know, one paragraph at a time, one dinner table conversation at a time. And, you know, community organizers have known this for decades, but I think it's crucial, and Denny was addressing that. Amy Irvine with Harg, do you agree? Is this, and, and how do you move that conversation forward? I, I couldn't agree more, Tom. I think what Stephen and Denny are saying is the very heart of what what we're talking about here. And I'm wondering if, since I'm sort of... Um, exploring this deeper realm today, if what I'd like to add is that the thing that, that, that we hesitate with here is the speaking of our desire and fully feeling our desire, um, just like fully feeling our wildness. There's a way that we come to the table with our righteous indignation, with our hurts, with our prejudices, with our agenda, and instantly that projection distances us from our neighbor. But what if, we, what if we really learn to speak from our desire? And what is it that, that keeps us from doing that? Again, I want to bring up this idea of repressed trauma. That we, have some, we have some science now that, that speaks to the idea that there's some way that traumatic memory is encoded in the genes that gets passed on. And so to bring this back to the idea of religion playing a part in this, what if the persecution, for example, right now the black community just had its first, its first um, symposium on trauma, uh, ancestral generational trauma that's been passed on about slavery. Um, the Jewish community has been very vocal and, and embraced their past with the Holocaust and the, the severe persecution they were subjected to and, and in, incorporated that into how they live. And I think it's the same for the Mormons. I think we have a strong, almost unspoken tradition in Utah of um, a sense of persecution of being the other that the federal government came after. And what if, what if that somehow inhibits us speaking fully and living in our desire in a very 
very physical, intimate, sensual way? What if that is the place we speak to our neighbor from instead of from a political agenda, which sort of has a charge to it that's very distancing? I think that's what Chris, Tim to Christopher means when he says this is what love looks like. And what I'd like to read quickly is a, a small um, excerpt from Craig Childs, my dear friend, who's a Colorado writer. He's in Utah quite a bit. His, his Pantheon published book last year, Apocalyptic Planet, Field Guide to the Ever-Ending Earth. He writes here about something that makes me think maybe we need to stop thinking so much about how we save the earth and, and really how we reveal ourselves, how we save ourselves, how we live as a fully functioning, breathing wild organism in the world and in human communities. And that is, he says, the earth is a seed planting itself over and over. We are not the gardeners. We are not benevolent beings leaving the house every morning with a watering can and a trowel to dig up weeds, weeds wiping our brow at midday to marvel at our handiwork. Instead, we are within the seed itself. We are part of its cells and the hardness of its coat. Our place is not to marvel at the futility and smallness of ourselves, but to keep life moving. What we do now from the inside determines the vigor of that seed, how long it might live, and plant itself again. Mm. That's uh, that's from Craig Child from Apocalyptic Planet, you said? Yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> we're just about out of time. Uh, Stephen Trimble, I'll give you the last word, and maybe we could circle back to uh, uh, you were reflecting that, uh, you know, you, you remember the, the first Earth Day and then, then up to uh, today. I uh, wonder what your final reflections would be on this Earth Day 2013. Uh, well, I'll quote Tip O'Neill, uh, you know, act globally, think globally, act locally. All politics are local. I think that in order to really develop those big ideas in that passage from Craig, Craig Childs that Amy read, the very best thing we can do is to fall in love with a particular place. And for Amy and I, that, that place has been the wildlands of Utah, and I know it is for many other people, and there are a lot of other places that each one of us learns to love, but intimate connection and knowledge with a particular place, whether it's the, the little canyon right behind your house or the co-op in Zion National Park that you go to to have those adventurous hikes that Denny talked about, or the, the, the one wild land that you discovered in your 20s that you go back to and take hikes into year after year after year, your favorite fishing stream, your favorite place to hunt, a place that connects you, that you know, and that you share with your family and the people that you love. That makes you human. That makes all of us more human. That gives us a, a place to begin, a platform from which we can have these conversations that matter so much as we move into a complicated future, you know, fraught with the dangers of climate change that, that lead to the issue of climate justice for all of us. It really is about people, but it's about our relationship with the earth as people. And that relationship grows out of our love for that place. And we can develop that by experience in a particular place. We have been talking with Stephen Trimble and Amy Irvine McCarg. Reflections on Earth Day 2013. Amy Irvine McCarg, thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure. Happy Earth Day to you both. Oh, thank you. And Stephen Trimble, thank you so much. Happy Earth Day.
happy Earth Day to us all. And uh, that's a, a good way to end the program. Uh, by the way, tomorrow we're going to be talking uh, more environmental issues. We'll uh, have uh, some uh, information on how air pollution is affecting you. We'll have some uh, recordings that uh, Jennifer Pemberton made. We'll be talking about air quality tomorrow on the program. Join us then. For producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison uh, Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>